So this is Paul Nobles from Eat to Perform, and this is our coaches course. What we do with the coaches course is the good majority of the time we'll have like a question and answer, but one of the things that Mike and I have been able to do is we know a lot of cool people, and so we want to introduce you guys to those people. Um, Mike, do you want to say hi to everyone? Because a lot of people haven't really seen you up to this point. Alex, if you want to say hi, I'm going to actually introduce, why don't we hold off on that for just a second. I'll just introduce you real quick, and then I'll let you kind of get rolling. Um, I met Alex. Um, I, I obviously know Alex through online, through his um, online persona. If you don't follow him on Facebook, it's quite entertaining. Um, and uh, what I would say is that, you know, my first introduction to him was through uh shoot what's that guy uh the um uh it's it's not important um but what was really interesting to me about alex is he is an ultra marathoner he's a power lifter and he has a lot of interesting things to say about energy systems his book hybrid training is a really interesting book if you want to look at training methodology and I think that some of what he's going to say are things that you know will change the way that you view programming I know for myself in programming my own um, routines uh, it certainly helped me a lot in his book hybrid training I expect to expected to read like this really super gangster book on how to you know do all the things and and you know what what I got was a book that was basically um, half of it is about recovery and so um, for someone so gangster that does so much cool stuff I thought that was kind of interesting and so I'm gonna let Alex, talk to you guys and then kind of run through his presentation and then we'll do some Q&A after that. So take over from here. Great. Paul, thanks so much for the intro. Um, you know, it's an absolute pleasure being able to uh, being able to, to speak to everyone here. Uh, yeah, no, I, um, I, you know, I think he, he covered a lot of what I, what I would uh, otherwise uh, say myself. Um, you know, my, my background is, 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 is in the sciences and, um, it's also, you know, in, in terms of athletics, you know, I've been a kind of a lifelong athlete, uh, played, you know, pretty much every sport I can think of and, and was thoroughly mediocre at most of them, uh, for most of my life. And, uh, recently about 10 years ago, uh, at this point, well, 14, 15 years ago, I'm getting old, uh, got into strength training. And, um, you know, more recently than that, about eight or eight years ago or so, I decided to uh, try my hand at some endurance sports and, of course, discovered I was absolutely terrible at them. And uh, what I've spent the last couple of years doing really is through a process of trial and error, trying to understand, you know, what, what are these factors that, that allow people to perform on all ends of the spectrum you know there's there's very much a sense that until recently and i and i have to say very much thanks to thanks to crossfit and the like there's very much a sense that uh you know human human performance needs to be measured in in one particular arena uh you know you need to be a strength athlete or you need to be a runner or you need to be a cyclist you can only be one of these things and do it well now i'm not here to argue that you can do multiple different you know sports and, and be elite at all of them but i can certainly say that you can be very good at all of them and uh, you know, a lot of this, uh, a lot of this understanding is really, as I said, built from 
quite frankly, a, a failure. I spent a number of years trying to condense everything and trying to, trying to simply get the body to do more work because obviously you need to do a certain amount of work in each discipline to excel in each sport. Uh, trying to get the body to simply do more work in order to to reap the relative results. And, uh, you know, the, the, the consequences to this were, were pretty abysmal. But typically, when people think about strength and endurance sports and the combination of the two, they think, well, you know, running will make you weak and, you know, lifting too much will make you a, a slow runner. And to an ex- extent, that's that's very true. And, you know, it's I think conventional wisdom, unfortunately, is uh, comes from using programs and using methodologies that are designed for the specialist. Because if you look at a good program, any good routine that you look at that you design for athletes, or even any good lifting routine or running routine, whether you're talking about a Hal Higdon plan for running or, you know, one of Jack Daniels plans or, you know, a West Side methodology, the, the juggernaut method, the cube method, any one of these things, these programs are all designed with the idea of utilizing all the recovery that the athlete has to offer. And if you start combining programs and throwing them together, you suddenly realize that this, this athlete, you're using 100% of, of the athlete's recovery resources. You combine that with another program that also demands 100%, and no athlete can give 200%. In fact, no athlete can give 101%. That's, of course, impossible. Each athlete can only give 100%. So what we've tried to do is break down different kinds of training, break down, you know, what... What are, the, what are the critical components to being a better runner? What are the critical components to being a better lifter? And how can, how can cardiovascular capacity and strength, how can they enhance each other in such a way that you're not losing anything by incorporating the other side of the spectrum? You're, you're actually, at, at the absolute worst, you're going to be cost neutral in what you do. You know, we work with a, a number of actually, you know, at this point, nationally ranked, um, and in one case, internationally ranked, uh, power lifters who do a certain amount of cardiovascular training. And we work with, um, you know, in fact, one of our, uh, you know, one of our triathletes, uh, you know, going, going to nationals, these are, these are high level individuals and they all do this kind of crossover training, not simply for any gimmick or, you know, not simply to, you know, uh, I, I guess, what would you say? Uh, not just as an injury insurance, but to actually make them superior athletes. So what I want to do is get the chance to discuss a couple of these methods um, hopefully to, to give you some idea of how you would you know, put these put these concepts to work and um, you know just kind of move forward from there and let you guys ask some questions. Alice, can I stop you for just a second and can you talk about absolutely your company? We haven't used your company name at this point. Well, there we go. actually, can you guys all see the slide? I'm fairly certain they can. Um, there are some okay. people that are still navigating, but yeah, most people are saying yes. Okay, great. So the company's name is Complete Human Performance. We were founded in 2012. We currently have, gosh, what do we have, 13 coaches. We have trained, at this point, even now, these numbers are <laughs> are obsolete, 450 athletes, and we have over 200 current athletes that we train. Uh, you can see kind of a range of who comes to us. Uh, powerlifters, ultramarathoners, um, you know, I'm not going to read the slide to you, but you can see it runs the gamut. And one of our biggest populations actually is military selection. I think one of our coaches has successfully gotten her hundredth uh, individual successfully into selection. So we have a very, very good track record with a lot of this. And you can see that some of these sports, uh, you know, take into account multiple different kinds of stimuli, you know, CrossFit, strongman, military selection. Well, otherwise others are very specialized. Um, Our team consists of individuals who are essentially experts in their various fields because 
we believe that when you are designing these programs, when you are looking, when you when you want to break down a sport and look at it, you have to have somebody who speaks the language very well. So you can see we've got people who are USAW certified, USA Track and Field, Triathlon, uh, CrossFit Level One. It, pretty much everybody. Uh, actually, we got CrossFit Level Two, Three as well. So pretty much everybody in our group has one sport or discipline that they know extraordinarily well, and. We use a bit of a, a group or a team-based approach to understanding and designing individual programming. So hybrid training defined, as you can see here, concurrent training of different, well, you know, I said I'm not going to read this to you. But um, now the important thing to note here is that the components of these training do not explicitly support one another, and the components are not essential to success. They can support success, but they are—they do not explicitly support each other. So while you may argue that, for example, in you know, it, when you're looking at say powerlifting, what is essential to success? Your your big three lifts, everything that supports training, supports work capacity, supports recovery, supports all those things. You can consider those tangentially essential to success. They're part of the training pro process, but they themselves are not final indicators of success. And that's that's important to mention because many, many forms of athleticism are very much caught up in the final product. If you are a 5K runner, the only essential component to success there is being good at running 5,000 meters. Your strength, your injury, you know, resilience, all these things, they don't explicitly matter to that final time, but they matter in getting you to that final time. And that's what we always try to emphasize here. So, Alice, can I stop you for just a second? Because, I, you know, sure. we talked a little bit about this in the beginning. And so as mm -hmm. someone who likes to have a long endurance component, someone mm -hmm. that um, does compete powerlifting occasionally, and someone mm -hmm. who likes to be somewhat proficient at CrossFit, mm -hmm. essentially what your programming would have those three elements for me. And then at any given mm -hmm. point, I would have an emphasis. So for instance, I would have CrossFit in my in my programming, I would have powerlifting, and I would have long endurance. And then when I start to ramp up for a CrossFit competition, we would start to emphasize that component more without neglecting the other two. Is that close to what is the truth? Absolutely, yeah. And you know, the, the the most important thing was that last bit you said there. We don't neglect the other two because you know we we, we believe and we found that it's it's of course critically important to maintain all aspects of athleticism for any of our athletes. You know, we can have you know we have an individual. He's a three hundred fifty pound strong man who's you know prepping for nationals at this point. We still have him doing some cardiovascular base building just because even though that's not explicit, you know, an explicit target. We look at them as the entire athlete. We say, okay. We're looking past this individual competition. What's he? What is this individual going to need, not just for this competition, but for next year and the year after? And not only will continuing to work on the, you know, the non-specific, the non-focused portions, not only is that going to keep them healthier and better rounded and everything else, it's also going to set them up better for the next training season. It's it's going to, you know. Uh, allow them to train longer, to train harder, and more importantly, it allows them to do something else if they ever get the need to. And, you know, I hopefully get the chance to touch on the psychology of sport a little bit because I think that's something that's, you know, often neglected here is is the fact that individuals, you know, they, they certainly like to find things to excel at. You know, they 
it's it's absolutely it's excellent of course to excel in your main sport but you know athletes do occasionally get burnt out you know you you have the concept of the off season that i think a lot of individuals these days don't really take i mean you know I, i'm sure a lot of the coaches listening may may, may realize that the, the off season is not something that you know even most intermediate to advanced intermediate level athletes take too seriously so you know, by, by giving these different kinds of, uh, you know, allowing individuals to compete and to try their hand at different sports, we give them the opportunity to excel at something in the offseason that can actually set them up for a better year next year. So one thing that I did want to kind of point out that uh, we might lose down the line, so I want to make sure all the coaches hear, hear this. In the book, it talks about something that's a big concept for us whenever we work with a CrossFit Games athlete or a or Olympic weightlifter or something like that, what we always do is we have them cut out of season. And that's a big emphasis in Alex's book. And yes. it's it's actually logical. Like, you know, I can't tell you how many times every single year we go up to regionals, we go up to the CrossFit Games, and then I see one or two people cutting and I'm thinking to myself, what are you doing? That makes no sense at all, you know? And so if you want to just touch on that a little bit, we don't have to go it's too in-depth. I mean, it's pretty logical, though. If you're a triathlete, you don't want to be cutting going into a triathlon, things of that nature. But some of this stuff, I think that people think that that extra three to five pounds is going to make all the difference in the world. And it just frankly doesn't. No, and that's, uh, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because a lot of people say, you know, we'll have a lot of uh, strength athletes come to us and say, look, you know, I, I, I want to drop a weight class, get stronger and, you know, improve my cardiovascular. Blah, blah. And what you said is absolutely true. You know, it's, it is so difficult to, if you have any kind of performance focus or if you're peaking for a season to then drop weight without a precipitous drop in performance. And there's, there's so many factors to it. It's just the fact that, you know, we, you know, already touched on how important maximizing that recovery is because the more things you want to do, of course, you know, that hundred percent recovery that you have, you're already taxing that to the limit. And if you're trying to to peak for something like the games, you know you're you're trying to maintain your aerobic base. You're trying to maintain your strength. You're working on your skills. You're working on a dozen different things at once. And if your recovery, your mental recovery, your physical recovery, your you know I hate to say, it, but your emotional recovery, because you know athletes are, are are squishy emotional beings, all of those things are already stressed to the limit. And then you add on you know wanting to wanting to drop a couple pounds on top of that, and you know, your available recovery shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And so the first thing we always tell people is, look, you know, it's anytime you actually have, you know, your performance goals here, you know, get, get to your, get to your goal weight and body composition ahead of time. So that when we then want to turn around and focus on, on your sport, we don't have to worry about that. And you know what, if you're not, if you're within two pounds of your weight goal before, you know, your competitive season starts, that's okay. Well, there's, yeah, an that's, inter- that's... there's an interesting point about what you're saying because, you know, um, we work with Danny Horan. She, you know, um, she actually had to withdraw from this year's CrossFit Games beforehand because she got injured. But what was interesting yeah. is that last couple years with the CrossFit Games, um, it's really favored uh, females around 135 pounds. So we tried mm-hmm. to get her to a weight that we thought was going to be um, – a little bit closer to set up towards the way the games had been going. So we got her under 145. Once we got her under 145, um, it as her training volume ramped up, 
we just could not keep her weight, you know, at 145. And Mm -hmm. so, but what was, what was funny about it is at 145, she's probably 15%. And then Mm -hmm. I think towards the game, she was at 149 and was down to 11 or 12%. And so (laughs) uh, that volume, the insulin sensitivity, I think the other thing that really gets lost in this scenario is when you take food out of the, out of the equation, like you said, Mm -hmm. there's kind of buckets, you know, there's a lot of buckets going on and you start taking you know, the food component out of the buckets and yeah. all the other buckets go bad, you know? And so, exactly. so would you be better off with three pounds less for butterfly pull-ups or would you be better off giving yourself um, a, a more complete nutrition package that allows you to be mentally focused, physically able because with all the training that goes on, even even going up to it as they're kind of tapering down, they really want to be ready and amped up. I mean, it's it's five days of just craziness. So, yeah, I wanted to talk about our experience there. Yeah, and you know that 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 very much resonates because you know I, I think one of the one of the things that we've had you know again a very interesting time looking at is of course different body types and certainly finding that the body types that can excel at different sports are much more varied, I think, than, than people seem to believe. And there's certainly norms. You know, if you look at the, the world's best cyclists, you know, the, the, the climbers, they all have a certain body type. And you look at the best Olympic 100-meter sprinters, and they all have a certain body type. And even if you look at the games, there's certainly an average. But anytime you have a sport that has multiple dimensions, which is almost every single sport, I mean, you know, even – even cycling has multiple dimensions. You have your sprinters, your time trialists, your climbers, you, all these dimensions. If you start to say, well, is there more than one body type that can excel? And, you know, the answer is absolutely yes. And, you know, it's, it's very difficult moving away from kind of the old guard. You know, if you're a runner, you need to, you need to drop this much weight. You need to be this size. Oh, if you want to be good at weightlifting, you need to have these leverages be this size. And, you know, I think what we're realizing more and more is that, you know, athletes have different, performance envelopes where they just perform better on, you know, on the average, we can say, you know, we had uh, one individual who was particularly, and we see this a lot because they'll be prepping for military selection. Um, You know, they'll they'll be looking at uh, special forces, SFAS or anything like that. And we say, look, the typical candidate who does well is 180 pounds or 178 pounds, just because of the different kinds of activity that they need to do. You know, there's, there's certainly a body weight component. They need to, you know, they certainly need to be hauling their carcass around for days at a time, but there's also a lifting component. There's an agility component. And we've worked with individuals who've been successful who range from 165 pounds to 220 pounds. And while these individuals on the extremes, you know, they certainly have certain disadvantages. You know, a 165 pound individual may have a much, much harder time carrying a heavy object or, you know, pulling a heavy object and your 220 pound individual may suffer in the obstacle course type events or the agility events or events, <laughs> agility portions. But, you know, the same token, it's, we, we firmly believe in maintaining an individual's strengths. And like you said, you know, your, your athlete there, she's significant. She recovers better at 145 pounds. She right. feels stronger. Her training volume can go up. That increase in training volume, which can be huge, can far outweigh any benefit on the day of that would come by being a few pounds lighter. Because yeah, would, being just, able to yeah. – Yeah, just to interrupt you for just a second, I mean, just a couple of years ago – the long endurance component was not a big thing amongst CrossFit Games athletes. And I would say in the last mm-hmm. two years, 
we've seen a huge movement towards that. And I think that that yeah. represents some of what you're talking about with energy systems and how that kind of affects things overall. But when you talked about outliers, you know, the one thing that I thought of right off the bat was Usain Bolt. Before Usain Bolt, no one ever thought a guy that tall and gangly, you know, would be so fast until he did it. And then all of a sudden, you know, now there's a lot more of that body type going after, you know, those types of goals. So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, and that, that's, again, that's a hard thing to get out of. And that's, that's, what's kind of fun about, uh, you know, about doing what we do is we see these individuals who are just exceptionally talented in a sport that they shouldn't be. And if they had listened to the conventional wisdom and, and you know, forced themselves to shave 40 pounds off or, you know, some other such, you know, what, what they've been told, they may never have realized their full potential. And that, you know, we keep coming back to that again and again and again. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very much about follow the athlete and, you know, realize that perhaps at the elite, elite Olympic level, there are certain norms, but that may be self-selecting. We may have people excelling in these areas because they think that that's what they have the body type for. And you may have people who may do very well or who could be world-class who haven't even competed because they feel they don't have the right body type. Right. So in terms of, you know, I think the, the thing that was most interesting to me, um, and, and I don't want to describe it poorly, but when you talk and I first heard you speak, the thing that made the biggest impression on me was that you wanted to work similar energy systems um, different ways. And then yeah. ultimately you wanted to have your other energy systems as far as away from those energy systems as possible. So can you talk a little bit about that or is that part of your slide? Because I, I, I just think that, you know, for everybody listening, that is probably the biggest thing that they'll get out of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't, don't even worry about the slides. I, I hate slides. I would much rather have a conversation. Sure. So yes, you know, it, and actually th this slide is relevant because it is, it's what we call, you know, a, a stressor first approach. Because you look at, you look at energy systems, you look at fatigue, you look at all these components, you know, what, what is it that an athlete has when they're 100% recovered? You know, they have a certain amount of, of currency, they have a certain amount of glycogen stored, you know, they, they have a certain amount of fat stores. They have a certain amount of creatine phosphate stores. They also have a certain amount, and this is a little more nebulous, but they have a certain amount of focus at any given time. And if you burn out any one of those energy stores, you know, whether it be you burn out their glycogen or, you know, you, you absolutely dehydrate them or you, you mentally burn them out so much from high intensity work, you'll compromise their ability to use that energy system again. And by looking at different sports, by looking, you know, rather than thinking, okay, this is, this is lifting weights. Okay. This is running. Okay. This is that, this is the other, by looking at it in terms of what energy systems you're using and what, you know, currency you're expending in it, you can put those workouts, you can combine those workouts so that you're using the same energy systems. You're using that same currency all at the same time, which then, you know, at the same time in the, in the micro cycle or in the training week or whatever else. And you give the individual as much time to recover from that as possible. Because, if, you know, if you think about it, just as an example, you think about, you know, a lot of high intensity interval type training. You think about whether it be, you know, the, the Tabata sprints, or you think about, you know, a, a hard explosive, hard explosive sprints or hill sprints or anything like that. And you think about the, the, the fact that 
you know, almost like getting under a heavy barbell, there's a certain mental intimidation that goes along with it. And there's also, you know, a certain physical fatigue. Those, those movements tend to be harder on the joints. They tend to be a little less forgiving. Um, you know, you can't get into a rhythm with them. They're hard, explosive, and they wear you out. But at the same time, the actual energy system requirements from those tend to be fairly minimum. You don't burn a large amount of glycogen doing multiple heavy singles or doubles. You don't burn a huge amount of glycogen doing a handful of sprints. So by by consolidating those down at the bottom there, you analyze what each one takes and you consolidate them. You can construct your microcycle based on those energy systems rather than based on you know arbitrary notions of okay, you know, here's where we're gonna do a run, here's where we're gonna do a lift. Because you know, I think it's important that, of course, every every coach looks at their athlete in terms of energy systems, in terms of recovery. You can't hammer the exact same energy system every day and expect that one not to burn out. You can't, you know, you can't do a, a heavy glycogen depleting workout every single day and expect the athlete to recover. You can't do a workout that's going to have a you know tremendous, tremendously physically taxing on on, the, on their muscles. You know that increases a delay, you know, causes a great deal of soreness. Every single day, your performance is going to suffer. And even if performance holds, you're going to get a lack of motivation. So maybe I can find a have to run through this. Uh, well, let me let me let me see bit. if I can get you with an example real quick. So if if sure. if I'm doing my heavy day, you know, let's say my heaviest lift is deadlift. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, in my cycle, um, I am doing some level of of. of threes twos or ones right working up to heavy singles then after that i would probably do something maybe a tabata cycle that's either maybe not a sprint but more like an airdyne or something like that is that close to correct yes exactly Exactly. Because if you look at, you know, you look at what's important in a routine, you look at what's important to building, to building cardiovascular endurance, you know, there's, there's a certain, with everything else, with lifting, with, with endurance, with all these things, there's a certain variety of, of stimuli that you need, right? You, you can't become a better athlete. You can't improve your cardiovascular system by just doing high volume, low intensity work. That's, you know, you'll, you'll improve your ability to be extraordinarily slow, but you'll have absolutely no, no higher intensity work capacity. Same thing with your lifting. If all you do is sets of 12 to 15 or, you know, sets of 20, you'll have good local muscular endurance, but you're not going to improve your maximum strength or power output much. So in both cases, you need variety. Uh, you need to do both the high volume, low intensity and low volume, high intensity work. And what this lets you do is say, okay, so let's do all that high intensity work, like you said, like the heavy squats, and let's do that along with the sprints or along with the Tabata. Let's do all that together. And, you know, if you look at just this chart here, you know, you could say, okay, you look at day six and day seven, that's where you've got your low volume work, your high intensity work. You look at day one and day two, and you could say, okay, you know, if we want our athletes to do some base building cardiovascular activity, you know, an 80 minute run or something like that. Day one or two would be kind of a prime candidate for that. Yeah. So by separating them as much as possible, you're really optimizing your recovery. And I think the other thing, too, that's really important, and, and, you know, I know we're talking about beast mode athletes and Olympians and stuff like this, but this really does apply to regular folks as well, because I could not be more regular. And my benefit, I mean, what we're ultimately trying to get clients is results, right? And so what Alex is talking a little bit about is that if you have a strength component and you have a hit component, 
four times a week, essentially what you're doing is you're allowing your customers to adjust to that stimuli, right? And then just adapt to that over and over. And so what's going to happen is they're not going to get, I mean, no matter how much variance you put in with sit-ups and, 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 you know, air squats and stuff like that, in general, you're kind of doing the same thing. If you, if you have like a 15 to 20 minute wad after kind of a strength session, and we know what clients do in that scenario, right? If they want to get stronger, they focus on the lifting part. And if they want to get better at wads, they focus on the wad part. Right. So nobody really gets really good in that scenario. And so the case that he's making is that if you can separate that as much as possible, if you look at CrossFit Games athletes and the way that they train, what he's talking about is how they train. But they have 15 sessions over the course of a week rather than the five sessions that your clients have or that I do. Right. And so if you can design programming to get results in that regard using, you know, a good, good variety of energy systems, not just changing the exercise, it makes a world of difference. Yeah, and you know, I, I think what's what's also important to note about this is, you know, even at the elite level, because people say, well, you know, my 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 client doesn't, you know, they, they don't want to do more than you know, be able to run two miles or last through a ten minute walk. Why would I have them do uh, thirty minutes on the air dime? And you know, the thing is, it's it's like anything else. And you know, again, even even the CrossFit athletes will do this. They, you know, I was listening to a uh, listening to an interview, a radio show with. Uh, one of the endurance coaches, he has them do low steady state work because all of this stuff combines to build a better athlete. You know, it's, it's like I tell people there's, there's a certain foundation you need to build, you know, because the, the fundamental part of strength, the absolute bottom line when it comes to strength is increase in muscular cross-sectional area leads to more contractile focus. That, that is your peak potential. Now, you can optimize that potential. You can make your muscle as strong and as efficient as it possibly can at a given size, but you need to do that base work. You will always be absolutely limited in your maximum output by how much base work you've done. You know, for, for a power lifter, it could be, you know, optimizing their, their body size and, and, the, and their muscular composition for their next season. You know, what I tell people when it comes to endurance as well is that low intensity work, that steady state work, that builds your base. What I tell people is that base work that's the size of the block of wood that you have if you want to make a you need a bigger block of wood you know if you just have a little block of wood you can spend all the time you want whittling away at it whittling away at it make something that's impressive but it's going to be very small you want to have something that has bigger more impressive results you need that bigger block of wood you need that bigger base well what and, i think you know, it's what i think is interesting sorry. and i'm not sure that everybody's going to to get this as we're talking about it maybe they maybe they will maybe they won't but what you're saying is is if you're using the energy system required for deadlifts and tabatas okay and then 4 days later you do long endurance that energy system gets to rest while this energy system is working and so while it's, it's not while it's not complete rest it's way better than constantly taxing that same thing and trying to get that one thing better and better and better 
and then kind of ignoring all these other things that don't just have the benefit of getting them better at long endurance. It has the benefit of also getting them some level of rest and recovery. Exactly. Exactly. That that actually brings up a you know very good point that we often emphasize is exactly what you're saying. You can only do so many heavy deadlifts, heavy deadlifts a week. You can only do so many sprints a week before you get to diminishing returns. Again, those are all very taxing in their own ways. So you say, well, you have to recover sometime. You have to recuperate sometime. What can we do that is of, of some benefit while you do that? You say, well, you know, you look at this, you look at a heavy deadlift, you look at heavy squats, you look at, you know, a heavy metcon, something like that. And you say, look, you know, the athlete has had their fill of heavy loading. If you throw in another heavy loading session per week, they're, 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 they're going to be going down that whole, you know, overtraining spiral. Uh, they're, they're, they're just going to be a wreck. So you say, well, you know what? If you get them out there for, you know, a 60-minute hike or a 60-minute easy bike ride or, you know, 45 minutes on the air dive, what does that do? Well, that improves their cardiovascular system. And there's certainly the, the heart actually has certain adaptations that only take place at a lower level of intensity. So you improve that. You certainly improve blood flow. You know, you, you do the whole active recovery thing, which is something endurance athletes have done for years where, you know, some level of low intensity exercise actually speeds up recovery. And so you are, you are improving the athlete's capabilities, you're building their base, but you're also, you're also setting them up better for their next workout. You're giving them a break. So you're doing something productive. You've essentially found an extra reservoir of work that the athlete can do that, you know, here's you're being there and said, oh, well, that's useless. You know, nothing is necessarily useless. That has an absolute purpose and it's something they can benefit from. See, that's what happened to me when I first started off with CrossFit because the main CrossFit protocol was three days on, one day off, okay? And so what ended up happening is, yes, I, I was able to lose weight. I was able to get better. I mean, I, I basically went from doing absolutely nothing in my whole life to, to doing something. So, of course, you're going to get better. But I was working out at 60% a lot, and it really just, like you said, it kind of kind of took away my reservoir. So when I went to powerlifting, um, I, I expected it just to beat the hell out of me, and it didn't. I ended up healing I ended up getting better and I learned all these different things. But but what I really learned was sort of what you're talking about. And it's that um, the the level of recovery when you um, make rest a priority, but also also use the energy systems differently. When when I went to powerlifting, I was still doing some level of hit training. But I didn't have the long endurance component. Now, can you talk a little bit about what what um, I think is is what you mean? And I don't want to speak for you, but I know when you know you invited me in on the run at in, Unstoppable, I was like scared shitless because you know I mean I don't run all that well. But you were saying no, it's just like a tempo run; it's no big deal. Can you talk to people about what a tempo run is? why it's important and why we aren't just like pushing the pedal to the metal trying to to have the quickest pace possible yeah so absolutely so okay so so number one in that is remember when you're doing these kind of runs of this kind of activity you're separating stressors so the most important thing to remember here and the, the thing i struggle with the most is saying let's keep that intensity down because it is so hard 
to convince, you know, especially, you know, people who are, who, who like to push it hard. It is so hard to get them to dial it back to, you know, 50%. And one of the most eye-opening things for most people, and, you know, whether or not you like heart rate training, is to put a heart rate monitor on people and say, hey, just go as fast as you can while staying under 70% of your maximum heart rate. And half the time, they'll get up to a slow shuffle and say, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm redlining here. You know, I'm, I'm at my limit. What is so important is to remember that that easy work needs to stay easy. Yeah. You know, because you're letting everything recover. You're letting those high-intensity systems recover. If I go out for, you know, a long 60-minute easy recovery run and I decide to go sprint a few hills, what have I done? I've just thrown in extra sprints there that I really they, – they're not doing me any good because they're not letting me recover. So – when I say, you know, hey, this is this is an easy run day, you know, I, I've worked with clients before who say, hey, you know, I was feeling good on my easy run, so I actually I set a mile PR. Aren't you proud of me? No. <laughs> no, I'm definitely not. Because this was meant to be easy. This was this was meant to be something that's letting you mentally recover. It's meant to be something that's letting, you know, it's keeping all those fast twitch fibers out of it. You know, it's it's preserving that side of, of the athletes of the athlete's system. So, you know, when I go out for these, you know, long, slow runs, regardless of, of whatever shape I'm in at that point, honestly, quite frankly, the slower I go, the better. And yeah. That's, um, like, that's, I think you said to me at the time that, you know, the general idea was 125 to 140. And what I've found mm -hmm. is that I just can't comfortably do 125 to 140, you know, that for, you know, my level of training, 155 to 160 feels right. And I think most people mm -hmm. should go by that a little bit, you know, where, yeah, yeah you got to kind of feel it out and see what, what feels right for you. You know, I mean, the one thing that most people don't know about me, which is, is really kind of interesting, is that the way that I got fit was I sat on low impact, you know, equipment for multiple times a day. So I would go on like a stair stepper elliptical type thing for like an hour and a half and then do like a rower for an hour and a half later on that evening and mm -hmm. just basically would get sick, would get hurt because there you know there my body just wasn't ready for that kind of stuff but now that I'm a lot smarter about what I'm doing I still have that ability mentally to kind of go there and I try to challenge everybody to do that to to get to a point where even if they're walking and running you know to go longer go an hour and a half go to two hours at least once once every two weeks something of that nature just so they can tap those energy systems a bit. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's the the, the psychology of of learning and, and adapting to these different disciplines is something that I don't think can be overstated either. Because you learn a tremendous amount about your capabilities uh, by doing, you know, a, a ninety minute run if you've never done one before, or by saying, "Hey, you know what? Today I'm going to do a fifteen k row." As terrible as that sounds, but you know, being able to, you know, knowing that you have that energy reserve and knowing that you can maintain it, knowing that you can push through it. You know, even if you look at CrossFit competition, for example, you know, it's a multiple, multiple day event. Uh, and, you know, this is something where individuals may find themselves in a position where they say, gosh, you know, I can't do, I can't do another hour and a half worth of events. I can't do another two hours worth of events. But they, they developed that ability to know that they can just keep pushing themselves. But more importantly, they can keep pacing themselves. You know, if you noticed, uh, there are a couple of years, and you know who was exceptionally good at this was, of course, Rich Froning. 
he was exceptionally good at, at saying, you know, knowing when to hold him and when to fold him. He, he knew that if he was struggling on a particular event, that his best bet was to simply dial it back because endurance athletes and people who practice endurance sports, they have this kind of uncanny ability to know where their limits are and know that, okay, if I, if this is what I need to do, this is what I have left ahead of me. This is how much effort I had left ahead of me. I need to dial it back to, you know, 60% in order to complete what I'm doing. And for CrossFitters, especially, this can be so useful because, I mean, how often do you see people run out of the gate and they'll be doing a six rounds per time? And, you know, the first four rounds takes them the same amount of time as the fifth round. And the sixth round takes them as much time as all the rest of them put together. And you say, well, that's that's not the best way to go. You know, practicing a lot of this, you know, lower intensity, higher volume work, it gives you the ability to, to pace yourself and to leave a little bit of the tank. And, you know, this, this constant to learn what constant steady effort is about. And that even, you know, for something that's typically seen as high intensity like CrossFit, that will give you a better outcome. You know, you're making a you're making a point that I think is one of the most important points for CrossFit that I think every coach needs to hear. One, if you look at the CrossFit games, first of all, I mean, there, you know, is CrossFit the CrossFit games? I, I would say no. Right. But. If we're talking about what CrossFit should look like, it should kind of look like what CrossFit Games athletes do. And what I mean when I say that is, if you have an athlete, okay, and we're programming um, something that's maybe 12 thrusters, as an example, it's more important for that athlete to have the 12 thrusters unbroken than it is for them to go threes and then have their hands on their knees for five seconds, and then three more, and then hand their head, you know, they're not going to get demonstrably better. If you look at when we made all of our games, when we all got better at CrossFit, okay, when we got better at anything, it was in the beginning when we allowed ourselves to be weak, when we allowed ourselves to not push ourselves to the point of complete exhaustion. And what, what, what happens when you start to get better, this is what happens with I'm just going to explain to you how every new person does and why the RX thing hurts people, okay? And and it has nothing to do with coaching. It has nothing to do with programming. What ends up happening is RX is the goal, right? So on a Wednesday, randomly, a person hits a magic wad and then they RX that wad. So now that they're an RXer. So on Thursday... They look at a weight and they go, okay, that's that's kind of heavy for me, but I can do it. So then they start to RX it and they do that as slow as possible. And then they're the last person finishing. Top person in the gym finished at 10 minutes. This person finished at 28 minutes. That is where it all goes bad. What ultimately, you know, one of the best things I ever heard was one of the first things I ever heard. And it was from Chris Spieler who, you know, I don't know if Chris Spieler means anything to you, but in the CrossFit world, he's kind of a big deal. And what he said was, he said, when the best people in your gym finish, that's when the 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 the, the people that aren't RXers, they should also finish. So you should modify the exercises so they kind of look similar. That's how that person is going to ultimately improve. That person never improves by not pacing. 
not doing weight at a reasonable thing because ultimately what you're going to end up doing is you're going to end up exhausting the wrong energy system, right? What you want to ultimately do is get that athlete strong enough so they can sort of deal with the, the, you know, the, the intensity, but also the weight and then, you know, have them learn how pacing works. And over the course of three months, six months, two years, three years, we're continuously seeing improvement rather than this focus on whatever's on the board we're going to do. Because, you know, I mean, that it, it's a nice goal, like you said, for athletes. It's nice to have that psychological thing. But at the same point, you know, we need to be trying to get better as well. So that's well, that's you know, my I, I, I think that it's funny because if you look at a lot, of, a lot of other sports that have been around for a long time, you know, you see that you know, established athletes in these sports, this is the direction that CrossFit is moving. And so just to, just to give an example here for a second, that, that may seem like it's a little, you know, from the left field, but it makes sense in a minute. If you look at the individual who set the, uh, the world record in the marathon or look at any one of these top level marathoners, they'll run the marathon all 26.2 miles at about a 445 pace. Or faster. It was a 4:42, something absurd. Very quick, right? What's interesting is if you look at their best one-mile times, we're only talking about a couple seconds different, about a 4:38 to 4:39. You take an average strength athlete in any gym, I guarantee you that individual could beat any one of these guys in the hundred-meter sprint. Any one of them, zero question. And probably everybody listening here could line up next to Meb, who's one of the you know the best marathoners in this country, and could beat him down for 100 meters, even if he was trying. Now, does that mean that they're a better athlete? Does that mean that they're better at the end goal? Because you get, like you said, this this desire to RX. This you look at one particular stress, you look at one particular stimuli, and you say, okay, I'm going to nail that. I'm going to get that 100. percent This this is my area. You know, I can do this. And they don't realize that 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 100 meters may look like everything to them but there are 26.2 left to go. They need to look at their entire training the same way. Here's a workout. I'm going to crush this workout. Or, you know, oh, gosh, I got the thrusters portion of this workout down. Or a 250-meter row to start, that I can kill. You say, okay, that's that's one part of it. That shouldn't be an opportunity to ring yourself out. Look at your whole training cycle. Look at the whole workout. Look at the whole training cycle. Look at the big picture and think, okay, you know, this is this is not the chance to kill myself. This is just a small component of the bigger picture. And just because I'm capable of, you know, hitting this goal, I want to get myself up on that, you know, the, the gym leaderboard right there. I want to get, you know, I, I want my name to be at the top of the list. You say, yeah, but that's, that's not sustainable. That doesn't mean you're the best athlete. That means that you're the best after that event. That means that you're the best that day. How many people in CrossFit or any other sport are the best after the first event and don't end up at the top of the podium? It's the exact same way. Well, and then what we're also talking about here, right, is we, you know, the thing that we emphasize a lot is that the goal is, when you're in the gym, the goal is to get better at exercise, right? And there's all kind of bullshit that goes along with that, right? The good majority of people think that they're there to earn food. There's people there for fat loss. And what we have emphasized since day one is, no, when you're in the gym, the focus is to get better at what you're doing. And so kind of transitioning from there, what I want to talk about is something that used to be like a really naughty word in CrossFit that is now routinely programmed in by all the big guns and everyone sees the value in it right now. And that's hypertrophy work. 
Can you talk a little bit about that and then how that fits into this whole schema where you're kind of keeping your long endurance away from your your heavier high intensity work? Yeah, there, there's a bunch of reasons why hypertrophy work is great. And what's interesting is if you look at the performance envelopes when it comes to squatting a given percentage of their max, bodybuilders are actually almost identical to the top crossfitters in terms of how many repetitions they can hit at a given percentage of their one rep max. And I thought that was interesting when I first looked at it. I said, you know, God, why is that? And, you know, first of all, for, you know, there's, for, for CrossFit, there's, you know, like anything else, you know, like I said early on, the, the, the absolute size of your muscle determines the absolute peak strength that you'll have. So obviously there's a benefit to, you know, up to a certain extent to, to, to having, to having larger muscles, to having hypertrophy work. But what are the other effects of hypertrophy work? Besides the fact that you're increasing your potential strength, hypertrophy work typically is done with a higher time under tension. It's done under a slow controlled manner. What do you do? Time under tension certainly helps develop strength endurance. The more time you spend under a bar, the more time you're capable of spending under a bar. You look, again, you look at an individual like, you know, Froning, who, yes, he's quote-unquote retired, but his one max back squat is significantly lower than mine, but he could probably, in fact, almost certainly, rep out 405 more times than I could. Why is that? That is, to a certain extent, because of this kind of work that he's done, that he has emphasized. Hypertrophy work involves, you know, it involves controlled lifting, it involves good form, it involves full muscular contraction, it involves a lot of those things that are typically overlooked, uh, certainly when it comes to uh, comes to CrossFit training and when it comes to simply RXing the wads every day. And what you're doing is you're developing all those components of strength, you're developing those components of strength endurance that are not typically developed by conventional training. And more importantly, you can do hypertrophy work without taxing some of those same systems. If you've spent two days that week, three days that week, doing heavy cleans, doing heavy Olympic lifts, doing muscle-ups, doing hand, you know, handstand push-ups, all those other things, and then you say, well, you know, what, what if I just want to do you know, a, a couple sets of squats at you know, 70% for three sets of 10? There's a different mental focus involved. You don't have to get yourself sucked up the way you do before, you know, trying to do unbroken muscle ups. You know, there's there's a different physical component involved. It's certainly not going to beat you up the way, you know, catching a clean on your collarbone is going to, or hitting a heavy double on deadlifts is going to. It, it's again, it's it's building components of athleticism. It's it's finding an extra well of recovery that you can expand. And at the same time, you're building very critical components of athleticism that are often overlooked. So in many ways, you say, well, hypertrophy training doesn't seem to have a role, but it absolutely does because it's additional work you can do that will benefit the athlete at next to no cost. You say, well, gosh, that's a no-brainer. Why, why wasn't this being... You, you um, broke up a little bit. Oh, sorry, which part did you miss? Oh, just that <laughs> very last part. Oh, I said, so, you know, you, you, you have something there that is you know it's it's additional recovery it's you know it this is additional work that can be done it's not going to tax the athlete it's not going to diminish their capabilities elsewhere and it improves their capabilities so why wouldn't you do it so let me give you an example of how i design mine and then you criticize that would would that work so what i do and the way that i often describe it is um it's basically slow skill work and it'll have like four to five components and mm-hmm. my focus on those components will be either upper or lower, you know, kind of typical um, to the way that bodybuilders think of it. 
but it, think of it more like skill sets. So for instance, a lot of the times I won't work on uh, pull-ups, right? I'll work on chin-ups because it's gonna get me a little bit more hypertrophy work with my biceps, things of that nature. I'm trying to think of some other things. Uh, ring rows, I'll do ring rows a lot, um, uh, which is kind of a, a way to superset a little bit of that. Now, one of the things you talk about in the book that, that I use quite a bit that, that has been kind of neglected, um, Borge um, Fajarli, I don't know how, how you pronounce it, but the myorep thing, you know, he talks about it a little bit as well. Um, it's a similar concepts to myorep, but you talk about the idea of just going to failure, right? And mm-hmm. with, yeah. with upper body and, and you don't see many people focusing on this. I think that a lot of people, like when you talk about CrossFit and getting to that place mentally where you just stay on the bar. So let's say you're doing kipping pull-ups. And the goal is to get to 25 unbroken kipping pull-ups. Well, if you were going to failure on bench press or something like that, the transfer there is probably not that hard, right? Mentally, you've got to get to a point where you allow yourself to be really uncomfortable. And as I started to transition to more CrossFit training for a CrossFit competition, what I've started to be able to do is transfer some of what I've, I've looked at with bench press and then use that for some of my pull-up work. But chin-ups, uh, ring dips, uh, bench press. And so what I'll typically do is I'll do like, I'll work up to you know, a couple singles. And then what I, what I do a lot of the time is I'll just do 100 reps at like 95 pounds, right? And um, I'll have my partner working with me and then I'll do 20 and then he does 20. And then we try to do it as quickly as possible. And by the time we get to, to 50 or 60, it starts to get real hard, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and so because we're not, we, you know, we're not like, you know, crazy beast mode athletes or anything like that. But it really is hard for us. And so, you know, we just kind of use those components um, probably what we'll do is kind of heavier in the beginning and more of the failure stuff in the end. So the, 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 the chin-ups, the, the ring dips, those would be like the middle component. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, and that's that's certainly that certainly works. Like, you know, I guess it's it's all about the, of course, what the entire week looks like at the end of it. Right. But um, you know, I do typically follow that that kind of principle. Certainly, when constructing a particular workout, is you say, okay, what's you know, you, you look at the workout itself and you think, okay, so what you know, again, going back to that whole currency idea, what's going to get exhausted as the workout goes on? And you say, okay, you know, when you, when you first get in there, you've got plenty of energy stores. What what? what is going to fatigue the fastest? Well, you need, you know, your, your mental acuity and your mental freshness. So let's do the high intensity and the high skill work first. And, you know, then you progress to something with a bit less intensity because intensity is the first thing to go. You can only get, you know, mentally, mentally ready for so many heavy repetitions. You say, okay, let's do some more intensity, but still high skill. You say, okay, there's, there's your ring dips. There's, you know, there's, there's that coordination work but it doesn't have the absolute load. And then you say, okay, and then at the end of the workout, what's the most productive stuff we can do with low focus and low intensity? And there you go. There's your, you know, hypertrophy strength endurance work. So, you know, applying that cascade to the workout as a whole, you say, well, where, where would a Metcon go in that if you want to do that as well? Well, you know, it really depends on the Metcon itself. Maybe that needs its own day. 
But that's, you know, that way of looking at it, and again, looking at, looking at what you have at the tank at the beginning of the workout and at the end of the workout, it's almost the same thing that you're looking at in the entire training program as a whole. And again, that's, that's kind of the, 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 the system that, that we work with is, you know, you, you're looking at those, those discrete components of training because by the end of it, it doesn't matter if you're doing high sets of bench press to failure or you're doing, you know, moderate tempo bikes or, you know, 250 to 500 meter rows to failure. It's going to be the same basic idea. Yeah, I think that one of the things that a lot of people forget when we talk about having a day just for what we're talking about, slow circuits where you're developing skills also transfers well to CrossFit. What what I think has happened, okay, and I think this happens a lot in the in the training world, is a client comes to us and they say, I want this goal. And so um, we say, okay, here's the idea. And then they say, okay, um, in the terms of CrossFit, they can sort of pick the classes that they want to go to, right? So what ends up happening is the training tends to go towards what those clients want so they stay away from the the strength training or they stay away from the long endurance because they're they're conditioned to believe that that 20 minute to 30 minute to 40 minute wide that crushes them is going to be the thing that ultimately gets them their goals and ultimately i think as coaches we have to be the ones to stand up and say look you pay me x amount of dollars okay to do this for you. If the goal is to get to where you want to go, I need you to understand why this is important. And I don't think that we as coaches always make that case. We we tend to go, hey, look, you know, there's a lot of people paying for this thing and they want to show up at these classes. So we're going to put more 30-minute wads in place. And then all of a sudden you've got a whole bunch of people yeah, they're basically doing kind of medium slowish circuits and not getting better over time. And so ultimately, yeah. and but I but I really I, one thing I really want to focus on in this instance is if you have a slow skill day, people get better at jump ropes. They get better or jump, uh, rope climbs. They get better at pull ups. They get better at chin ups. They get better at weighted chin ups all these different things and then when they show up in a wad they're better at them right i mean there's no better training for just doing rope climbs than going and doing 25 rope climbs right you might do them at funny but you're going what you're going to do by the end end of that class is you're going to go okay my foot positioning needs work this needs work Instead, what ends up happening is you get a little bit of time for rope climbs, and then all of a sudden, you know, you know, it's wide time, you know, and then the music starts blaring, and you kind of catch the rope a little wrong, and you land a little wrong, and then you, you, you miss the next day because of it. I mean, so some level of skill work helps there. You know, and it's, you know, I think it's like every sport goes through a phase, and every athlete goes through a phase where they think that testing is the same thing as training. And for a lot of, you know, a lot of people in CrossFit, certainly the, the testing becomes the training, hitting, hitting that wad and getting that time becomes the objective. And you, 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 it, it's hard to push back and realize you say, look, any, any sport that people are good at, how often do hundred meter sprinters run a whole out hundred meter sprint? Almost never. 
you know, how they spend a lot of their days doing, you know, runs at 80% and they spend time doing skill work and doing drills. You know, you look at weightlifters and how often do they try to PR their, their, their clean and jerk in training? Almost never, you know, and so you look at anybody else and they say, well, I don't want to be an elite athlete. You know, I just want to have fun, but I want to do this. Well, you know, getting better is fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Being good at your sport is fun. And you say, look, you know, we're, we're trying to build you up to be a better athlete here. We're trying to work on those components. And this is what all the best do. And, you know, if, if you want to be better at this, we every piece builds on the next. And those low-intensity days are going to make you – they're going to build that base for your higher-intensity days. And the person that you think you're crushing right now because, you know, they're spending your energy on all these other little things that you're not interested in, they're going to overtake you in six months, and you're going to get frustrated. And – it's, it's hard to sometimes, you know, again, get, get in the mindset of, okay, we want to give our athletes what they need, not necessarily what they want, but how do we, how do we convince them that that's what they want? And that's, you know, you come back to saying, well, well, everyone wants to get better. Yeah. Well, everyone wants to get better and everyone wants results, right? Yes. And so if you, yeah. if you can position the training, I mean, look, the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of the people that I started CrossFit they're no longer here for various reasons, but the biggest reason is that they aren't getting the result that they signed up for, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think if you can make a compelling case as a coach, you're going to retain clients better, but you're also going to be able to give them a better approach. Now, one of the questions that was kind of presented that I think is, is sort of interesting and what they said was in terms of the Chris Spieler quote, wouldn't it make sense for that person to push it on occasion? And my argument would be that they would be better off pushing it strength training alone or working on skills alone and then testing, similar to what Alex was saying. So, you know, trying to push the weight when you're testing, a lot is a test. I guess that I guess that's not totally clear here. But what we're really testing is what someone can do in 20 minutes, you know, for sit-ups, for whatever is in the wad. So wouldn't it make sense for those people to get better at those those single elements um, outside of that, and then test less frequently? So if somebody's wadding say five to six days a week you know and and really you don't see crossfit games athletes doing that um i mean we've had a number of occasions where you know danny will wad maybe two three times a week but she's working on skills she's working on long endurance she's working on strength training she's breaking out all the single components now that's difficult for a lot of your clients to be able to do but i think you always should make the case for some level of strength training some level of hypertrophy some level of skill work and some level of long endurance i think that always should be part of the programming and if they just want to show up for you know the tests like like alex is saying then that's sort of missing the whole point. And ultimately, you're going to lose a client because of that. They, they're going to get better at wads if they get stronger. They're going to get better at, 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 at wads if they, if they get better at skills. And, you know, it's fun. Like, I didn't know that I could do legless rope climbs, you know, and, until I started to try it. Well, I would have never tried it if I didn't have slow skill days. And so I think that that's something that can be 
um, really implemented. But I think that that's a good answer to what she's saying is that you don't get better during the test. You get better in the time outside of the test. Yeah, exactly. So, especially, especially in a sport with so many different components to it. You know, you, 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 can't, you can't get all the exposure you need to each one by just hammering at them in 20 minutes. So I know, so, you know, I think the general idea is we try to keep these to an hour, hour and a half. Um, what I kind of want to want to end with is um, we get a lot of questions about uh, how do I feed before an event? And uh, something that you said, well, there's two things that you said that really resonated with me. Um, and we've started to implement that talking to clients. Um, but also, I'd be interested to know how you would have had uh, you know, people prepare for the Murph event that was so controversial. Um, mm -hmm. And so when you're going to, let's say, a triathlon you know, event on one day, if I recall correctly, what you say is load your carbs at lunch, right, and then have a smallish mm -hmm. carb meal um, the day, the the night before, um, the idea being is that it allows your glycogen stores to refill, and you don't need to be uncomfortable. The problem with loading a bunch of carbs the night before is you can be uncomfortable. That could affect your sleep. If you load them at lunch, it's better. Did I mis misunderstand that? That's uh, yeah. That's uh, that's almost entirely entirely accurate. And actually, part of the reason is because. If you eat a large meal, there's actually a, you know, a system because, you know, your body likes to digest all the food that comes in, you know, very, very little is wasted. And there's actually a system in place that if your stomach and upper intestine is still full at the time that food reaches the end part of the lower intestine, the, the ileum, it's effectively going to stop peristalsis. You're going to stop pushing food through your system because if the body has so much food in your intestines that it's, you know, it, it's essentially full from, you know, from one side to the other, it, it, it's basically not going to digest everything efficiently. So digestion actually slows. So what happens if you stuff yourself? Uh, for the next 12 hours or so, your system, your digestion is going to slow down while all that food slowly works its way through. And what's going to happen then if you take in any other food during that 12, 14-hour period? It's not going anywhere. So what we tell people is we say, look, if you eat, if you stuff yourself at 7 or 8 o'clock at night, the day before a big competition, when you wake up at 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning or even earlier, you're not going to digest anything that you take in. In fact, you're going to drink water and it's going to sit there sloshing around and your breakfast is going to sit there and it's probably going to come back up in about two or three hours if you push yourself because it's not pushing through your system. So what do you want to do? Load up and eat your biggest meal around noon. And what's going to happen is that's going to be mostly out of your system, probably by the middle of the night. I mean, at least it's going to be through your system. So your glycogen levels are going to be topped up. And you know what? You're going to wake up. You're going to have a breakfast. And your breakfast is going to digest. You're going to be able to get in water. And during the event, especially, and that's what's so critically important, during the event, you'll be able to eat and drink as you need. And you're going to be able to absorb all of that stuff. And that's what's so important. 
because, you know, especially in events like this, especially in a CrossFit event, you could be outside for six or eight hours during the day. You say, you know, I'm going to need to be eating. I'm going to need to be drinking. I'm going to need to be taking all this stuff in. If I'm still, if I still have gastric upset from the night before and I could hardly keep down my breakfast, I'm not going to be able to take enough food or water to last me through the day. I'm going to crash hard after the first two events. And by noon, I'm going to feel like garbage. So by, you know, by kind of backing that up a little bit, by having that big meal earlier on, you avoid that problem. Yeah, I don't know how familiar you are with what these guys know related to um, nutrition, but it's it's not that advanced. Um, and uh, you know, frankly, I think a lot of uh, there's a lot of low hanging fruit. You know, I had a I had mm-hmm. a high level CrossFit uh, games coach talking to me at one point. I think actually Mike might have been on that phone call, and he was explaining why you know, he works to get their times, you know, 0.5 better on whatever workout they they do. And then I asked him, I said, well, how many of your athletes know how much they're, you know, taking in on a daily basis? And he said, well, you know, most of our best athletes don't have any clue at all. I said, well, do you think that that would have a positive impact if, if they, you know, they knew that or a negative impact? Because, that little 0.5 that you're trying to get them, if they're under eating by 2,000 calories, wouldn't you say that we could really get that pretty easily if we had some mm-hmm. idea what's going on? I'm not saying that you need to be super rigid about counting and things of this nature, but if we can start to kind of put the pieces together, it, it only makes sense. And I think that, um, which brings me to, to the Murph thing, because I thought that your... Um, commentary on that was was pretty interesting because um, there was some so there were some elements that you may or may not know about that I'll kind of you know talk to you about from what I saw and and being you know around the athletes at the time. Um, first of all, not all of them had water. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so you. Know, I think the easy part here would be to talk a little bit about how they would have hydrated. And I'm just curious because I, I, you know, we've started to recommend your 24 ounces and then 15 grams of carbohydrate and then some electrolytes. And you, you have a whole formula for it in the book. You know, we'll, we'll, we tend to kind of have them, you know, just do some 15 grams of carbohydrates with a nun tab or something to try and get a similar type effect without yep. the formula. But mm-hmm. on that Murph day, is that the type of event that they would have done that? It's an hour long. It's 135 degree heat. Is that what they would have done? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and that's, again, it's... It is it's it's very very difficult to 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 get people to you know to to stop and hydrate, but for something like that, you know, absolutely, because that's that's one of the things, you know, dehydrating an event like that is the number one thing that causes. First of all, it's a huge performance detriment. Uh, you know, that your, your your muscles definitively cannot produce force when you dehydrate. Your blood volume goes down. So what's happening to those athletes as they're running, as they're out in that heat? All the blood is is going to the surface of their skin to try to keep them cool, and they're sweating, and they're losing all this water to try to keep their temperature down. How much is actually going to you know to to, to their muscles to to get oxygen and nutrient next to none? 
So what's happening is just this whole cascade of problems that's going on. They're, you know, they're, 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 you know, their their aerobic capacity is going down, and their strength is going down, and you know they're they're eventually they're just overheating and they can't control their temperature anymore. And you know the the idea of not overhydrating a little bit going into that is is just is nuts to me. It's just um, you know it sounds so counterproductive. But now let's talk a little bit about what you mean with hydration because we just talked a little bit about the formula: twenty four ounces of water. 15 grams of carbohydrates with some level of electrolytes. Alex does have a formula in his book. It's a great formula. You should definitely take a look at it. Let me just tell you what was going on at that event. At least half the people did not have water. Okay, did not have any water. Can you explain why having water might actually be bad in that scenario? Because they're just having water and it's not going to work the same way that having some level of carbohydrates and electrolytes would be. Yeah, and you know, one of the one of the biggest things about that, of course, is you're not just losing water, you're losing all that salt, you're losing all those electrolytes. And you know, there is that condition called hyponatremia that's you know, that's that's certainly fairly risky. It's it's interesting because you know, people tend to worry about rhabdo on one side of things, but hyponatremia is just as bad. And the problem is if you take in a whole bunch of water into your gut and you're not replacing those electrolytes, what's gonna happen is you're effectively going to dilute that electrolyte concentration in your blood. And you need that sodium, you need all those things, you need those for, for, for proper heart function, for proper muscular function. And not only is that water going to absorb slowly because you actually need, you know, the, the water needs to have as much salt in it as your blood does to actually absorb perfectly. And of course, you know, your blood has salt, your blood has other things in it. If there's no salt in your water, you'll actually digest slightly salty water faster. You'll absorb it faster than you would normal water and you need those again to replenish those things if all they had was pure water and they're sweating out you know they, they sweat out a gallon of water and they take in a gallon of pure water they could actually have problems from that because all those electrolytes that they needed those are gone and those aren't getting replaced so you know that's that's one of the criticisms that goes along with a lot of sports drinks is they don't have enough electrolytes in it. they have they have some glucose which is great but they don't have all those electrolytes that people need well See, what's interesting about what you're saying is, is that, one, not only did they not have water in a lot of cases, when they went for the mile run, they grabbed for water, right? And that's not what they needed. What they needed was a solution that was going to replace what, what ended up happening. And, and you know, CrossFit's got, kind of got like this thing with Gatorade and stuff like that. And I, I don't really want to get into that fight. And that's not really important to me either way. But we're not even really talking about that, right? What we're talking about is just having a smart approach to what you're doing. Actually, your formula, your formula has honey in it. It has, you know, it, it it's it's not like a it's not like a um. Well, it's it's not it's not it's not it's not Powerade. It's not Gatorade. It's not something that you're buying off the shelf. You know. Nope. Nope, it's actually, you know, I base that formula as much as possible on uh, oral rehydration therapy, which is, you know, what they'll give to sick kids who are suffering from severe dehydration. Uh, you know, it's, it is just designed to give the body all the, all the fluids and electrolytes it needs as quickly as possible, which is exactly what they should have been having. I mean, that is, you know, it is, it is amazing what that formula will make you feel. You know, I've, I've had guys who have gone off and they've done, 
you know, they've done six mile or sorry, six hour, eight hour rucks where they're wearing full gear. They're carrying, you know, 80 to 100 pounds of equipment. They're going out for six hours in the heat and they'll drink that stuff and they'll feel okay. And that's, you know, it's, that is so important both for getting through the event for, you know, not staggering by the end of it. And most importantly, it's so important for recovering after it. And that's maybe one thing I, I do want to stress as a takeaway is when it comes to all these things, when it comes to hydration, when it comes to eating for events or even eating for training, remember, you're not just trying to get through the event itself. You're trying to recover for the next thing, whether the next thing is going to be training the next week or the next event or anything else. So people may say, oh, you know what? I can, I can get through this event. I don't need to, I don't need to drink any extra water. Oh, I don't need that hydration formula. I don't need any of that stuff. But you think once you finish that event, you're going to be in the hole. And why would you put yourself in that situation where by giving yourself just a, a little bit more of what your body needs before or during it, you can be back to baseline faster, which is going to let you get back out there faster and better. So in terms of, of you know, what you're talking about, what are your thoughts on Pedialyte, right? Because what happens for a lot of these guys, it, guys and gals, is they will, you know, come out of that event and they'll drink some Pedialyte good or bad uh you know i'm a big fan of pedialyte honestly it's um it's basically based on a similar uh, you know similar type of formula pedialyte is a little more concentrated than i think most people need i usually recommend about a 50 50 dilution but going for pedialyte which is much higher in electrolytes and much lower in sugar is is such an improvement over you know going for pure water or going for you know gatorade or anything like that but i think it's very much a step in the right direction you know, if you can convince people to, you know, take in 12 ounces of Pedialyte for every 12 ounces of water, I think they'll be much better off. Now, can you can you just go ahead and make the case, because you, you do in your book, of why sports drinks are actually going to be bad in that scenario. Basically, they have too much sugar, and the, the overall absorption levels aren't going to be good because of that. Is that correct? Exactly. They've, they've got so, so much sugar in them, in fact, that they can actually pull water into the stomach and have it sit there, which is the exact opposite of what you want. If you have too much sugar in the, in the, in the small intestine, what's going to happen is your body's not going to suck all that water out and leave the sugar sitting there. It needs to absorb the sugar and it needs to leave water in your system, in your digestive system until that sugar is absorbed. So what's going to happen is suddenly all that sugar becomes the rate-limiting step there, and you can't absorb all the water that you need until that sugar goes in. That's why if you look at the you know around the finish line of any marathon, and people are drinking Gatorade the whole time, you'll see you know red splashes everywhere because the body just can't absorb it anymore at that point. It's not doing them any good. So yeah, cut cut out that sugar. You know, people, some people may need it. You may need it to fuel your activity, but they also need the extra water. So. Absolutely. Like, you know, the, the, the sports drinks that are very high in sugar, especially on a hot day when you're sweating a lot, is so counterproductive. In your in your 24 ounces, um, somebody's asking how much of that was sugar, or I'm sorry, how much of that was, uh, was salt? Oh gosh, you know I need to pull the exact uh, pull yeah, the exact it's, a, it's in it's in the book. Um, I mean, you know, I. I, I yeah, I think everybody should read yeah. the book. So, but I, it is, I certainly. I, I, do you? Yeah, do you I, I really hesitate to quote the wrong figure if I'm not yeah. looking at it. Do you think something Sorry, like a, would a nun tab is that is that going to be roughly good enough? 
Yeah, those are usually those are usually calibrated to be about one tab for every sixteen to twenty four ounces. That's the usual recommendation I see. So, and I, I'm I'm ninety nine percent sure they're looking at the exact same data I am. So that yeah. that should be right about it. Okay, good. Um, the the argument that you made just for everybody, you know, and and I I heard some good arguments um, that the event could have been at a different time. Um, like having Murph at, let's say, 8 a.m. where people weren't burning their hands on the bar. But can you talk a little bit about the idea of, sport? you know, the spectator aspect of sport? Because I thought you made a really compelling argument. And I have to say, when I was watching it, okay, and watching the, um, you know, I could already see that a lot of them didn't have water. I could already see that a lot of them, first of all, if they didn't have water, how many of them had the formula that we just talked about? Not many, right? So so we know that most of them weren't prepared, and that sucks that they got hurt because they weren't prepared, but obviously going into it in, in the next years, they will. One of the things I heard somebody say that would be really good would have been to have it in the morning so the bars weren't sitting in the sun all day to blister people's hands. So I think that that would be a huge plus. But why don't you talk a little about, because you're ultra marathoner, marathoner, um, triathlete, and, and talk a little bit about those sports because, you know, even though this was really hard, 135 degree heat, you know, there's many examples where, from a spectator standpoint, they are intentionally pushing the envelope. Yeah, and you know, I, I think that's the thing is if you look at you look at a lot of like you said ultra marathons, you look at triathlons, you look at the fact that you know Ironman Ironman Hawaii, Ironman Kona was not selected to be easy. It was selected precisely to weed out everybody who had any signs of weakness. You know, they had triathlons up to that point, and the original idea was to create an event that would that would crush most triathletes. Uh, they said they don't they don't hold an event on you know the big island of Hawaii in the middle of you know black rock lava fields um, because they want people to to cruise through it you know fighting being able to fight the elements and being able to be prepared that is all you know components of athleticism and again you look at ultra marathons and each one of them tries to one up the other one by being more challenging than the next and you know what what's the reason is it is it because they want people to get hurt. No, absolutely not. It's to see, you know, even in bad water, which is, you know, 135 degrees and, you know, these, uh, some of these ultras that take place and have, you know, 40,000 feet of elevation gain, the goal is to destroy the athletes. I mean, nobody wants to see them hurt. You know, you can see them not continue, but no one wants to see them hurt. What they want to do is they want to see people rise to the occasion. They want to see that the athletes can anticipate these challenges, that they can prepare, and that if they're struggling, they know their limitations and know how much they need to back off. You know, it said certainly, you know, having, having the bar burn people's hands, you know, that's, that, that sucks, you know, maybe, and you know, that's, that's a lesson learned in any sport, you know, any, any elite sport makes mistakes sometimes, you know, the, the Tour de France, which has been around for, you know, gosh knows how many years at this point, you know, they've certainly made missteps in how they design stages and where they have them. So, but the overall goal has still been, let's push the limits of these athletes, but give them, give them new challenges that they can, that they can conquer. They're not going to be easy. People are going to drop out. People are going to miscalculate, but that's part of sport. And that's, 
if you're trying to determine what is an elite athlete, they need to have these dimensions. They need to know how to anticipate. They need to know how to pace themselves. They need to know when to cut their losses. All these things are components of, of elite athleticism. And while it's incumbent on the organizers to make sure things aren't dangerous, and I'd say, hey, maybe maybe next year let's have some white bars or something. Or let's have yeah. somebody hose them down. Right. But, you know, other than that, you say, well, you know, you've presented the challenge. It is up to the athletes to determine how to best approach that challenge. Yeah, I think the other thing, too, I mean, you know, I don't know Dave Dave Castro, I, you know, uh, um, but but I will say that people were saying that he didn't care. Um, I mean, Carl Webb, who was, who, you know, it was carted off on a stretcher. Um, you don't see these moments on TV, but Dave Castro went up to her, asked her if she was okay. You know, I mean, this isn't an uncaring guy, you know, um, and, and I think in general, he's an event organizer. There's probably a certain amount of distance that needs to happen there. Um, what's interesting about what you're talking about, I don't know if you're familiar with the PEG event, but. Um, basically, of the PEG event, um, I think of the eight final women, seven of them cut their losses, <laughs> and so it exactly. made it made for it made for a really shitty event. But actually, Rudy Nielsen um, from the Outlaw Blog made a great case for it, and he said, you know, and he used Sam Briggs as an example where three years before doing Amanda, she couldn't complete a round. The next year, she was able to complete it fastest of everybody, and then now she has the best time by far. And so if you don't continuously push the bar, in the yeah. end, what does, what does you don't advance the sport. And exactly. Even, and th even, it, though, even though you have these awkward moments occasionally, they're, they're not all that bad for TV. And what it, what it shows is that even the best people – like, for instance, uh, American Ninja Warrior, okay? How many people have co completed the course? Almost nobody, <laughs> you know? Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why it's so damn entertaining, you know? And so <laughs> I think we all need to sort of keep that in mind. We did have a bunch of questions. Unfortunately, I'm, we're not going to be able to get to them. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground with Alex. Um, potentially, we could have him on for some other stuff later on, but... Uh, at this point, you know, what we've found is that anything after an hour starts to get a little sloshy in the brain. Anything after an hour <laughs> and a half really goes bad. So I really hope you guys appreciated it because, frankly, I think that what Alex is talking about is next level. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, whether it be powerlifting, long endurance, whatever, I think that the the – Thinking about the recovery aspect and trying to focus on that smarter, not always harder thing is really the next level for, you know, you know, athletic training. I just I just genuinely believe that. And I know we talked a lot about elite athletes, but I'm telling you, I'm not an elite athlete. I'm not like a wad killer, gym crusher dude. And I've seen more muscle gains. I've seen more strength work. I've seen a lot better, you know, uh, aspects of my CrossFit um, because of it. I think, you know, one of the things that we didn't get to talk about that I would love to talk about eventually, you know, is this idea of a almost 50-year-old man, you know, holding himself to a standard that's so high 
You know what I mean? Like, like I think that I think that we all get lost in this journey, right? And we weren't doing very much five years ago, and then all of a sudden we're doing all this crazy shit five years later. And then you know, it's good to hold yourself to a higher standard, but at some point you have to be realistic about that. In that way, I think CrossFit isn't as good as other sports. Because in powerlifting, you're separated by weight class, you're separated by age, things of that nature. And in some ways, that works against all of us in CrossFit because we're sort of lumped in with the 22-year-olds or whatever. There, there's some work towards doing that. Obviously, there's master's events and things like that. But in terms of the classes that we go to on a daily basis, they're not sectioned out for a 50-year-old athlete or a 25-year-old athlete. We're all kind of doing the same things. It's RX on the board. There are gyms that do that, but in general, it's sort of few and far between. Well, anyway, I appreciate you being here. Um, that was really cool, um, and we're definitely going to be doing more of this type of stuff, and we're going to be trying to tap into a lot of different uh, ways of thinking, and, uh, and this was just one way to do that. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. I, I, I do hope everybody got something out of it. You know, it, it, like I said, I'd be more than happy to, uh, you know, speak to you guys again if you want to talk about some different topics. But um, like I said, otherwise, it's been an absolute pleasure. So to finish things right, off, to finish things yeah. off, the name of your book is what and where can you buy it? And then your training system, if people want to get programming is what? So the name of the book is The Hybrid Athlete. You can find it on jtsstrength.com or Juggernaut Training Systems. It's under their uh, electronic, uh, I think electronic media section. It's easy to find. Uh, company name is Complete Human Performance, and that's also the website, completehumanperformance.com. We do online programming uh, for pretty much any sport or any combination of sports. So just uh, you know, check out the website and shoot us a note if you're interested. Love to hear from you. Alrighty, well, we're going to shut it down right there. I appreciate you being there, and I hope, uh, unfortunately, everybody, I hope you forgive me for not being able to do questions, but we just had so much to ground to cover. So talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Great. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.